Hi, welcome to the New Story Church podcast. We hope that this week's message encourages you and brings you closer to Jesus. Now we're starting a brand new series today. We have a lot of ground to cover. So are you guys good with me just jumping right into the message? You ready to roll? You ready to rock? Everyone, everyone, yes, okay, let's do this. We are starting a brand new series called Warfare. This is gonna be a three-week series where we talk about spiritual warfare. And this series is gonna be a little bit more teaching than, than me preaching, but sometimes we have to do a teaching series. So when we get to a series, I know it really disappointed someone over there, sorry about that. Uh, but when, when we, we do teaching series so that when I'm preaching, and people are saying, amen, hallelujah, that's great. We know what we're saying amen and hallelujah for. So we, we teach so that we can preach, and preaching, it all, it all complements each other. It's all great. It all works together. And we're starting this series on spiritual warfare. Now, just looking at our own community, our own city here in Buffalo, over the past year, just, just looking right where we live, we all can recognize pretty easily that evil exists, Evil is at work, and there's also suffering, pain, and trials just right here in our own community. Going back to May 14th of last year, where there was a mass shooting that happened right in our city that was driven by hate and racism, and somebody who was just filled with anger and rage and, and the dark forces at work within this world. Then there have been circumstances that aren't necessarily, hey, that's evil at work, but there have been things that have happened in our, in our city that are, definitely have caused a lot of suffering and pain. Just a couple weeks ago, we had a historic snowstorm right around Christmas, and over 40 people lost their lives, which results in suffering and pain and questioning what is going on here. And then not too long after that, uh, the Buffalo Bills were playing on Monday Night Football. And into the first quarter with about five minutes left, one of the players, Damar Ham- Hamlin, made a tackle. He stood up, and then he immediately collapsed. And everyone's watching this, and we're thinking, this, what's, what's going on? He's just a young man. God, why would you let this happen? And people started praying. And now, thankfully, Damar is, is healed, and he's moving around, and it's amazing. And there's a miraculous work that has been done in his life. But in that moment... There was suffering and pain and questioning. What is going on? Isn't this a bright and wonderful way to start a Sunday morning talking about all of this? <laughs> but but we've, we've all been wondering and asking that before, and that's just right here in our city. But if we were to look in our country or in, across the world at different things that are happening all around the globe, it's no secret that there's evil and pain and suffering And some of you this morning, you've brought some pain and suffering with you. Maybe something you've been going through that nobody else knows about. Maybe something that you've been facing and you're thinking, I don't know what this is going to look like. And at times it's even caused you to get upset and angry with God. It's maybe even caused you to say, God, why why is this happening? God, I thought you were good. God, what is going on? And, and, there's, and it's okay to have these questions. It's okay to be upset. And it's okay to say, what is going on here? And to have a conversation about that. Our core verse for this series is Ephesians 6.12, where the Apostle Paul writes this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul says there's something else going on. It's not just against flesh and blood. There's these rulers and powers and these wicked forces, and there's this darkness and spiritual forces that are influencing things that happen in this world, that are somehow at work right here, right now, in this world and in around. It's like, what is going on? What are you talking about, Paul, as he's writing this to this church in Ephesus? And sometimes we take this verse and we just breeze over it or we just look at it in the sense of our own individual self. Yeah, there's some darkness in me and I'm fighting against it. And, I'm, and there, there's a sense of that in this passage. But there's much more that Paul's getting at here. And that's what we're going to explore in this series. That there's a war going on. That there are beings and dark forces at work. And what does that mean for us as people who are kingdom people and are seeking to follow Christ? I want to give a couple disclaimers before we jump into the message today. First of all, uh, I'm going to try to avoid the extremes in this series because some of you have been in situations before where there's this one extreme when people start talking about spiritual warfare, they get a little weird and they start using words that nobody else knows. They start praying these really crazy prayers and you're like, I don't really know what's going on right now or what this person's even talking about. They start saying things that sound a little strange. One time somebody said to me, yeah, uh, Satan shoots at us with fiery arrows and what puts out fire? Liquid. What's the liquid of God? The blood of Jesus. So you need the liquid of God. And I'm like, okay, I think we're just taking some metaphorical pictures here that are used in the scriptures just a little bit far right now. I think, yes, the, the blood of Christ, you know, rescues us from sin and all of that wonderful stuff. But sometimes people just start drawing all these things and putting all these things together. And it's like a big conspiracy map or something. We're going to try to avoid that extreme. But there are other extremes that we go to as well. I'm going to be, if you end up being really interested in this, I'm heavily relying on the works of Dr. Richard Beck and Dr. Gregory Boyd. Uh, Richard Beck's book, Reviving Old Scratch, is a great introductory book to spiritual warfare. So if this is something you're interested in, I would highly recommend that book, Reviving Old Scratch. And then Dr. Greg Boyd has two ac academic works, God at War and Satan and the Problem of Evil. I would, If you want something really deep, each of those books is over 400 pages. They're a little more academic, but they give a really interesting insight to spiritual warfare. But one of the things that Dr. Beck talks about in Reviving Old Scratch is sometimes in our modern Western minds, we've gone to another extreme. And we try to have a natural solution to all of these supernatural problems. He, he refers to it as the Scooby-Dooification of spiritual warfare. How many of us watched Scooby-Doo growing up or are familiar with Scooby-Doo? All right, there we go. Scooby-Doo, the mystery machine would show up. You know, Fred, Daphne, Velma, Shaggy, and Scooby, they'd show up. And they would typically think that there was something supernatural going on. There's a ghost. There's a ghoul. There's, there's whatever. There's something happening. And they would think it was something supernatural. But typically by the end of the episode, or the end of the movie, they would find that what they thought was supernatural had a natural explanation. Oh, it's just someone wearing a mask. Oh, it's just a projector. And they, you know, I, we would have got away with it too if it wasn't for you kids and your dog and all that stuff. And they always thought, what, oh, this, we thought it was supernatural, but it actually has a natural explanation. And that's the extreme that we have went to sometimes in our modern Western mindsets. We think, oh, everything just has a natural explanation. We can just figure it out ourselves. We can eventually get to the bottom of it. We can eventually get the answer. And I don't want us to go to the extreme where we're just being weird. Yes, we're going to talk about some weird stuff, but that doesn't mean that we have to be weird about it. And I don't want us to be on the extreme where we're trying to just give a natural explanation for things that could be supernatural. 
for, for, for wars and forces and darkness and evil that could be happening in the world or is happening in the world. And then before I jump into today's content, I want us to remember this passage right here, 1 Corinthians 15, 57. This is something for us to cling to, for us to know above all else, because we might talk about some stuff. We're like, this is a little dark. I don't know if I fully understand this. This is a little strange. Cling to this verse. Paul says this, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what happens, no matter what we hear, no matter what's going on around us, there's victory in the resurrected Christ. He is our Lord and Savior. He's the King of Kings. He defeated sin, death, and the grave, and he is King over all, and there's victory in Christ. Amen? Amen. So if we start getting, oh, I'm a little concerned. I don't know what's next. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, 57. There is victory in Christ Jesus. All right. I got three things I want to talk to you about today. Three truths, three concepts, whatever sounds most preachy and spiritual to you. Three, three points. Okay. The three things I want to talk to you about today. The first two are going to be relatively quick. And the third one's going to take a little bit more time to explain. And the first two, if you've been in church for a while, you'll be like, oh, I've heard this before, but it's good for us to lay this foundation as we desire to have a Christ-centered view in talking about this. So the first thing we're going to write down today, the first truth is this. Satan is real. Satan is real. Satan is real. He's, he's this being that is moving in and around the earth. He's influencing people and ideas and structures. Satan is real. In fact, there are passages where Jesus refers to Satan in the Greek. It's the word archon. It means the ruler of this age. He refers to Satan as the ruler of this age. In Matthew chapter four, we see Jesus have an interaction with Satan where Satan tries to tempt Jesus. And Satan at one point offers Jesus, hey, I'll give you authority over the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus denies it because then Jesus becomes the king over all creation. But he says, I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. And what's interesting in that is that when Jesus resists Satan, Satan, he doesn't look at Satan and say, you can't do that. He doesn't look at Satan and say, you don't have the ability to do that. And as we'll see in some scriptures we're going to look at here in just a moment, there's an influence that Satan does have. And we believe that Satan is real because Jesus believed that. And the New Testament talks of that as well. The New Testament authors, Jesus says this in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus refers to him as the ruler of this age in John 12, 14, and 16. He refers to him as the thief in John 10. Oftentimes, Satan is referred to as the adversary and the accuser. We believe, if you're a Christ follower, that Satan is real. Paul talks about him in this way in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 2. He said, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul refers to him as the prince of the power of the air. In Corinthians, Paul refers to Satan as the god of this world. So Satan is real, he is moving, he has influence. Now, I do want to say one thing about this though as well. There are some people who almost act as if Satan is equal with God. If Satan and God are, you know, right on par with each other, that is not the case. God has all the power over Satan. And Satan cannot be omnipresent either. God has this ability to be omnipresent. Satan does not have the, I don't think Satan has the ability to do that, to be omnipresent. And nowhere have I read does anybody seem to think that that's the case either. But there are some people with the way in which they talk about Satan. You would think that he's omnipresent. 
because he seems to be with them or around them or tempting them or, or coercing them at all times. Oh, it's always Satan. It's always Satan. There's some people who talk about their ministries that way. Oh, Satan's doing this and Satan's doing that and Satan's getting in the way. And I just want to say, you must be a really important person in the kingdom of God because Satan seems to be focusing a lot of attention on you. And there are some people, it's, it's really not Satan. It's just, you need to be more responsible. And instead of saying yes to the old life, it's time to start saying yes to the Holy Spirit and the new life. There are some people, the way they talk about Satan, you would think that you, they're just the most important kingdom aspect of, of everything that God is doing in the world because, oh, it's just always Satan. Oh, the enemy's always attacking me. Sometimes it's literally just, no, you need, you need to make some better decisions. It's not always someone else's fault. Sometimes it's my fault. Sometimes it's your fault. But he is on the move. Peter refers to him this way in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So he is prowling around. He has influence. He is at work. Satan is real. That's number one. Number two, told you these first two would be quick. Dark forces are real. Dark forces are real. According to the scriptures, there are, you could even say demonic forces. There are dark or demonic forces that are at work with Satan in the world, doing things to influence people into a direction that is contrary to the way of Christ. That's why there's even times where maybe you're aware of somebody who's done something evil or horrific. You're like, yeah, they're responsible for it, but it's almost as if they're there was something else enticing them or pulling them or they had given into a story or a narrative that I knew, we, I just, we knew, you know, you could see by looking at them, this is going to lead to destruction. And that happens. We see people who have great influence, who could be business leaders or ministry leaders or politicians or world leaders. And you're like, what is going on? It's almost like there's something more at play than just bad decision-making. Because there are dark forces at work as well. Paul refers to them this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He said, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Paul says there is one true God, there is one true Lord, who is Christ Jesus. But he says there's other gods and other lords, and most scholars believe that when Paul's talking about what we would call these little g gods, he's referring to demonic forces that are at work within the world. So there's that. But this one is really interesting, Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10, Daniel is praying, and an angel comes to Daniel and this is a really interesting passage. You probably, maybe you haven't seen this. Maybe some of you have. I shouldn't assume things. But this is really interesting where Daniel is praying and an angel comes to him. And this angel lets him know that another force got in the way of this angel getting to Daniel. Listen to this. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to your words. Listen to this. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, people believe that's a demonic or dark force, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. 
I was trying to get to you, Daniel. I was trying to answer your prayer, but for 21 days, there was this other force at work. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. I I tried to get to you, but I had been left there. I couldn't get to you. There was something going on. And this is something that I don't even, you know, I'm a pastor, I'm studying, I'm trying to do all these things. This is something that I don't even fully understand. But there are these free agencies, dark forces at work who are at work to try to thwart the purposes of God in the world. And some of you might right now be like, okay, Scott, this is, this is all just a little bit weird. This is a little bit strange. I, was, I would love to hear a nice encouraging message about how much Christ loves me. And I'll, I'll give you that message in a few weeks, okay? And I, I know this sounds just a little, bit, a little bit strange. And if you're new to church or if you're new to faith, this is going to sound really weird. And I get that. I understand that if you're new, if you're new to this, if you're like somebody brought me here today, this guy's, this sounds just really weird. I completely understand that. But if you're here this morning and you follow Jesus and you've given your life to Jesus, this really isn't that strange because we are people who believe in supernatural events. In fact, our entire faith structure is based off of the reality that Jesus was in a grave and came out of the grave three days later. It's a beautiful truth, but our entire faith structure is built off of a supernatural event. We believe that the supernatural is at work within the world. So yes, it sounds strange, but I mean, if, we, if we're followers of Christ, we believe in the supernatural. If you're new, I get it. Like, you're kind of like, okay, just follow along with us. Hopefully this will eventually make sense at some point in time. But, if you, but we believe in this. We believe that the supernatural is at work. But here's the second thing that this helps us to do. We live in a time now where we're so quick to cancel people that we don't like, to demonize people in groups that we don't like. And what this does in having an understanding of this is I would contend that we actually can now better love our enemies and pray for those who hurt us. Because while there are times that people are responsible for their decisions and we need to have conversations about that, what we also begin to see is that people are still loved by Christ. And sometimes what has happened is they have been deceived into a way of being or into a way of living that is contrary to what Christ has for them. And so therefore we seek to love them and pray for them instead of demonizing them. Dr. Richard Beck describes it this way. He said, we can come to see the people we are fighting against, not as intrinsically evil, but as victims and pawns of these larger unforeseen forces. We can come to see that the evil we are fighting against can trap us all. That should be, every single one of us could be susceptible in some way. It could trap us all. Blurring the lines between good guys and the bad guys. We start to wonder if the righteous Twitter mob I'm joining is as righteous as it appears. Oh man, is this, is this, is this what it seems to be? Because we all can be deceived. We all could be susceptible to a certain degree. This is, I believe, even how Jesus is able to be hanging on the cross, looking at those who have mocked him, abused him, beaten him senseless, and he doesn't look at those people and say, oh, they're just so horrible and wicked. He doesn't look at them and say, I don't want anything to do with them because they're pushing forth an agenda that I don't like. Jesus looks at them and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When we start to have a better understanding of what's at work, we can better love people, love God and love others as we've been commissioned to do by Christ, to forgive others 
and to love our enemies as Christ asks us to do. Satan is real. Dark forces are real. Here's a third one. This is going to take a little bit of time for us to unpack here. I usually do my longer point first because, you know, everyone's wide awake. We're going to do a longer one towards the end here. We can do this, right? Everyone good? Head shake. Yes, we're good. We're good. Okay. Third idea here. We live in a war zone. Take some time to explain this. We live in a war zone. I want to submit to you something this morning called the warfare worldview. And this is when we start to see that the world that we're in right now, yes, Jesus has established his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. But as we've talked about here before, we live in the already, but not yet kingdom. His kingdom is present. It's reigning. It's moving, but it will one day be fully established upon his return as he brings heaven to earth and makes a new heavens and new earth here. That, so we live in the already but not yet kingdom. But until that time comes, we live in a war zone where dark forces are still at work, where the prince of the power of the air is still at work. Dr. Gregory Boyd defines the warfare worldview this way. He said, stated most broadly, this worldview is that perspective on reality which centers on the conviction that the good and evil, fortunate or unfortunate aspects of life are to be interpreted largely as the result of good and evil, friendly or hostile spirits warring against each other and against us. There's good and evil, friendly and hostile spirits warring against each other and warring against us, those who are trying to follow in the way of Jesus. There are these beings and these spirits and even evil forces at work and sometimes people who are even driven by evil or who are animated by these evil forces. This is at work within the world. And this was something that the New Testament authors and Jesus himself understood. This was something that they really just kind of accepted as a reality, that there was this war zone that we are now living in, that Christ's kingdom is moving forth, but there are things that are going to happen in this world that are contrary to the way of his kingdom. And these things are going to cause pain and trials and suffering. This was it, the, the, their understanding of the world. For each of these points, I have way more scriptures, but because we have limited time here today, we're just using a couple for each one. But here's, here's a couple here where they understood this. John 16, Jesus said this, these things I've spoken to you so that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation. Some translations say in this world, you have trouble, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Jesus says, you will have troubles. You will have difficulties in this world. Jesus doesn't say, if tribulation happens, Jesus doesn't say if pain happens. Jesus talks about as if this is a present thing that is just, it's going to happen. When tribulations arise, take courage because I have overcome the world. There are forces at work. There is evil at work. There's suffering that happens in this world. And when it happens, take courage. I've overcome the world. Jesus doesn't say, hey, when you follow me, all this stuff's going to go away and you're going to have a beautiful, wonderful, prosperous, prosperous life with no issues ever at all. He says, no, there's going to be troubles. James, the brother of Jesus, said this, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. He doesn't say, if you encounter various trials, or, uh, you know, if this happens. He says, no, when you encounter trials, there will be trials in this world, there will be trials in this life, and every one of us in here, no matter what your background is, whether you're new to church, whether somebody just brought you here, whether you come to church every week, you've been going your whole life, we all know there are trials in this life. There are trials in this world. And this was an assumed perspective of Jesus and his closest followers in the New Testament, that there are trials and tribulations and pain in this world that it's a part of being alive. It's a part of being in this realm where the prince of the power of the air who is Satan is at work. But this, this brings up some interesting questions. Some people might ask this question. 
Why does a good God allow bad things to happen? Another question people may ask that I I didn't put up here, but is why does an all-powerful God allow evil to happen? Why doesn't he do more about it? Or why does a good and if I'm if I'm just to be honest with you, I've done a lot of reading on the subject. I've tried to do a lot of praying over this. I have some ideas and some things I'm gonna propose to you this morning, but to come up here and be like, I have the answer. I'm gonna let you know, okay? I have the answer. If anybody ever comes to you with a question like this and like, I have the answer, I'd be like, okay, um, maybe. Uh, <laughs> you, you may have figured out something that uh, other people haven't. I have some ideas and some things I wanna submit to you this morning that I think are helpful for understanding these questions, but to, oh, it's me, I got it. Okay, well, uh, you know, talk to somebody who's been through some really serious suffering and then go give them your beautiful answer and see how that goes, okay? But how does this work? What exactly is going on here? Why would a good God allow bad things to happen? Or what, why does an all-powerful God not do more? Like, what exactly is happening? What is going on here? What do we do with this? Because I think a number of us have been there before or have asked that question before. And it's not something that is easy to come to a solution of. And, and what I would like to propose this morning is, first of all, there's this beautiful quote from uh, Pastor Andy Stanley. He said, because somebody asked him, well, why do bad things happen to good people? And his response was, our faith is built on the belief that the worst possible thing happened to the best possible person in Jesus Christ, the crucifixion. Our faith is centered around that the worst possible thing happened to the best possible person. Jesus, who is the, the exact representation of God, who is the fullness of goodness, a sinless life, it was completely beaten and rejected, and the worst possible thing happened to the best possible person. Our faith is already, in a sense, like, oh, wow, it's a little bit eye-opening to think of it that way. But another thing that I would like to, to submit, specifically when it comes to, okay, well, God's all-powerful, so why is he not doing more? What exactly is going on here? And in Boyd's work, uh, God at War and Satan and the Problem of Evil, he talks about two different blueprint worldviews that a lot of times we submit to as Christians. And the one blueprint view is, oh, God's all-powerful. That must mean that God is all-controlling. That must mean that God wills all of these things to happen, and thus he determined them to happen, and he wanted them to happen, but yet he will somehow redeem the things and use them for his glory. And there's some people who hold to that and believe that, and they can argue for that really well. In fact, if they were to come up here and argue with me against that, they could probably make me look stupid. But I'm just not really, I'm not convinced by that view. I'm not convinced by that view that, okay, so God willed these bad things to happen. He determined it all. And some of this goes back all the way to Augustine. He determined it all. He willed it all to happen so that, because it sounds to me that like God determined and willed bad things to happen so that he could then get the glory and bring good out of bad. It almost feels like God is at war with God and not at war with dark forces and with Satan because he willed, it's just, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me. And I've heard people talk about it. And there's some people who believe that and they're faithful followers of Christ. And we say amen to them. But I, I don't, I mean, maybe, but I just, I, I don't really see that. And there are some people, the blueprint that they have is more so, okay, God is good and God is all powerful. And, you know, God, God didn't want this evil to happen, but he allowed it to happen. I'm like, okay, I, 
I, I see where that's coming from as well. And I have, I'm a little bit more resonate with that view than the other. But then the, sometimes it brings up, okay, well, if he allowed it to happen, why would God allow something horrible to happen for one person, but not another person? Why would God get involved in this situation, but not in that one? Well, he allowed it to happen so that his good could come about in their life. Okay, well, God can work all things for the good. I totally believe that. But it brings up like, well, why would he do that for and not another person? And if God could do something and he does love us, then why didn't he do something? And I think some of the answer here actually goes back to Daniel chapter 10, where these beings and forces at work interrupting and fighting and doing everything they can to thwart God's will in the world. And it's something that we don't always fully understand or can wrap our minds around. But I also think that with this, we always think of, okay, if God should wage war by just forcing his power and just being dominant and just, you know, pushing it all out. But for some reason... The way that God wages war and the way that we've seen him wage spiritual warfare and have the most victory in spiritual warfare is on the cross of Christ where he defeated sin, death, and the grave. He defeated that which just, you know, gives us all depression and hurt. He defeated death. And the way in which God won that war was through self-sacrificial love on the cross. For some reason, the way God wages war in his character and in his being and who he is is not in the way in which you and I think he should by just, oh, be Mr. Dominant, flex your metaphysical bicep, God, and just punch him out. That's not how God wages war. God wages war through self-sacrificial love. And it is through his self-sacrificial love that victory comes about. And it is in doing this that God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Paul talks about this in Corinthians. And then Paul also says in Corinthians that what God does does when he wages war is instead of like stomping or punching or whatever, what he actually does is when God wages war is that he outsmarts the enemy. This is how God wages war. Look at this in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 8. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. He's talking about the, the wisdom of God, the wisdom in Christ Jesus on the cross. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had understood it, if they had understood what they were doing in crucifying Christ, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had understood it, they wouldn't have done it. But they didn't understand it because what Christ does time and time again through waging war, through self-sacrificial love, is that he outsmarts the enemy. And this is how Christ wages war in the world, through self-sacrificial love that ultimately outsmarts the enemy. And we're okay with that when we watch Avengers Endgame and Tony Stark outsmarts Thanos by sacrificing his life. Oh, that's brilliant. But when God decides to wage war that way, we think, oh, this just doesn't make any sense. God, why are you doing it this way? And sometimes we think, oh, you know, God, you know, you're all controlling. So just do something about it. And it's weird to me how we always associate control with power with God. Because if you know a human being who tries to control everything around everybody's life, you think they're not powerful. They're manipulative and weak and annoying. And we associate that with humans, but with God, we think, oh, if he's all, he's all controlling, you know, no, that means he's all powerful. But God, in the risk of love, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, he wins war through self-sacrificial love, through laying down his life and through outsmarting the enemy. We don't always know what that looks like, but it's how he wages war, how I would submit to you he wages war. Which brings up another question. Okay, Scott, okay, okay. I kind of get that, Scott. I don't really get that, what you're saying right there. Maybe I get it. Maybe you don't. I don't know. Sometimes I try to be clear and I'm not. I'm doing my best up here. But anyways, why did God create evil beings? 
Why did God create evil beings? Because this is another question that people ask a lot. Why? Okay, Scott, there's this war going on and we live in a war zone and there's evil forces and dark forces, but why would God even bother creating evil beings? I mean, if God created it all, why would he even bother with this? I'm gonna take you just a little bit back to Genesis. I know we're doing a lot here this morning, but we're, we're gonna get through this. We got this. Genesis chapter one, verses one and two. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Can I just give you like a little nerdy thing right now? Okay, maybe. I don't know. I didn't hear anything from anybody. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Darkness over the deep. When you read some of the Old Testament literature and the Psalms and Job, they believe that when God created the earth, he separated the waters that were covering the earth and brought forth land from that to create his good creation. And this, this reference to darkness or deep in the ancient world would have most likely been a reference to chaos that existed. This is what we call the gap theory or the restoration theory. And this darkness or deep could have also been a reference to the Babylonian goddess Tiamat, who was over the deep, who was the god of the deep. And Genesis, the author is letting us know that God is the god over this evil goddess of the deep, over the darkness. But what this also could be a reference to, if there was this darkness, there was this deep, and God brought forth creation from that, is that some believe, and I I happen to fall into this category as well, that what actually happened before God created the world, there was the heavenly places, and there was a cosmic rebellion that happened. Now you're like, okay, Scott, what is this, the Lord of the Rings or something? Okay, there's this cosmic rebellion that occurred where there were other created beings, free agents who were independent, and they said, you know what, God, we don't want anything to do with you. This comes with the fall of Satan and the fall of the dark forces who went with Satan. And and because of that, that's the reference here to the surface of the deep or these other gods who exist in the ancient Near East. And God has come forth above those gods and he is over those gods for he is the one true God. But this begins to explain, okay, where did that serpent even come from in the garden if all of the creation started out as good? The serpent was most likely a part of the cosmic rebellion, this darkness over the deep that God brought forth creation from, the serpent was a part of the cosmic rebellion and it's somehow gotten into the garden, which is why God gave humans this commission in Genesis 2.15. Then the Lord took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Some translations say to protect it and oversee it. Why would he need to protect it and oversee it? Because there's these other forces, these free agencies, beings, as Paul would say, these principalities and powers at work. This is maybe where the serpent came from. Also, this would explain Genesis six for all of my wonderful conspiracy friends out there with the Nephilim. The Nephilim, these evil, dark, angelic forces, where did they come from? They were a part of the cosmic rebellion that occurred and who are now working and moving amongst the creation, trying to draw humans away from what God has for them. Okay, 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 Scott, but like, why would God, why would God set this up? Why would he do this? Why, did you have an answer? Why good and evil? Why? Here's, here's an answer that I've found some peace in. Maybe you will as well, maybe you won't, but I'm hoping that this this will help you in some way. I'm gonna read to you a very long quote from Dr. Gregory Boyd, which I think helps to explain the cosmic rebellion and also the fall of humanity and and the tension of evil. And it's basically this theory of the risk of love. This is the risk of love that God was willing to take. Let me read this to you. If God desires a bride made up of people who genuinely love him, 
If God desires a bride, the church, the church is the bride of Christ. So if God desires a bride of people who genuinely love him, who do not just act lovingly towards him, that's what I have troubles with with some of the predetermined stuff of, you know, you were predetermined. Okay, but then how do you reason that you're not just acting lovingly towards God because God wired you that way? But if God desires a bride made up of people who genuinely love him, who do not just act lovingly towards him, he must create people who have the capacity to reject him. He must endow agents with self-determination. They, not he, must determine whether or not they will love him and each other. And this, I submit, explains why God created a world in which evil was possible. If love is the goal, it could not be otherwise. God chose to create a world in which evil was possible only in the sense that he chose to create a world in which love was possible. The possibility of evil is not a second decision God makes. It is implied in the single decision to have a world in which love is possible. It is, in effect, the metaphysical price God must pay if he wants to arrive at a bride who says yes to his triune love. It's a price to say yes to his love. It's not a second decision he makes. It is implied in the single decision he makes for love to exist. It's the risk of love. And because of this risk of love, some agents and forces and beings outside of this world have chosen evil over good. And some human beings who we, who we know, who we've met, some from a distance, have decided to give into that narrative and choose evil over good. But here's the good news. Every single one of us, while we have been tempted towards sin, while we have been tempted in our lives towards evil, we are offered a new life and a new chance to live in the kingdom of Jesus and become a new people who see things differently. And yes, there's still a struggle. Yes, there's still a wrestling that happens within that. But we can be a part of his eternal kingdom work on earth as it is in heaven. We can actually be the people who move against evil and in moving against evil, not condemning other people, but inviting them into this movement of Christ that we've all been invited into as well. Because he did not come to the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. And we get to participate in this weird war zone scenario where evil is existing and be the people who even when evil bursts forth or when dark forces burst forth or when dark forces thwart something that could be good and beautiful, we can say we believe in the God of redemption who overcame sin, death, and the grave. And even when all odds are against him, he's the God who bursts life forth in all situations. And we as the church can be a part of that. Amen? Amen. Let me give you this. Romans 16, 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This is an interesting thing. I could spend all day talking about this. God somehow through his peace or the God of peace somehow crushes Satan. Somehow it is through peace and sacrifice and love that he, that he sacrifice and love that he, that he, that he takes out evil, that he takes out the evil one. And so we must be people who are defined by peace and sacrifice and love because it is through that that his eternal purposes move forward. It is through that that we can better love others and demonstrate to the world who Christ is.
And so for those of you here this morning who might, oh my gosh, Scott, this is a lot. I don't fully, I don't really know. And you know what? I just want to know that, that Christ loves me and that he's with me. Let me give you this this morning. Romans 8 verses 38 through 39. Write this down. Take this with you. Hold on to this truth this morning because once you're in Christ, you cannot be separated from him. No matter what comes at you, no matter what's at work, there might be moments where we stumble. There might be moments when we're struggling, but ultimately in Christ, he lets us know in John 10 that we cannot be snatched out of his hand. And Paul lets us know this in Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What can separate us from Christ Jesus? What can separate us from Christ Jesus? Nothing can separate us from Christ Jesus, our Lord. No, no things present, nor things to come, nor powers, no principalities, none of that can separate us from Christ Jesus, our Lord. So remember that this morning, that ultimately, whatever you're going through, we have the victory in Christ Jesus, that God may not have necessarily willed the evil to happen or the suffering to happen in your life, but he can redeem it and work it for the good. He is at work within all things and nothing can separate us from our King.